0: Well, this morning we're going to begin a series in the book of James, and so if you haven't figured that out uh, yet, go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of James. We're going to be in the book of James for a while until we finish. This is the best way I believe that God has designed to feed His family is through an exposition of the Word of God, going through books of the Bible, learning what the Bible says. Um, There's occasions when we do topical things. We're doing that on Wednesday, and there's a place for that. But I believe that just in my own life, the way that I have grown, the way that I have learned is when I take and open the Word of God and and let it speak for itself, And as I go back and reread that Bible and book and chapters, that I understand what it means. It doesn't mean we exhaust it. It doesn't mean that we have said everything there is to say. But we allow the Word of God to speak to us. And so we're going to begin with this study, the book of James, that in a broad title I'm calling The Gospel on the Ground. And why do I call it The Gospel on the Ground? I'll explain in a little bit. But let me mention... A few things introductory about James, about the book of James. And I hope that you have your Bibles. And let me encourage you to bring your Bibles. Bring something to take notes on. Don't be a passive listener. People talk about, well, I don't know the Bible. I don't know. I, can't, I want to study the Bible. This counts. This counts. That's what we're doing. Right? We're studying the Bible, and if you need the Word of God to penetrate and change your life, then when you come into the celebration time on Sunday mornings, come deliberately looking and anticipating for God to speak through His Word. Be intentional. So let me encourage you to do that. I think that you will have great reward, not because of anything I necessarily say, but because of what I'm saying about and what the word of God is speaking to us but James there are many individuals in the New Testament by the name of James and I won't go through all those various reasons why Bible scholars believe that the letter and that's what this is is a letter with the name James on it is attributed to the half-brother of Jesus the Bible without again going into a lot of scriptures you can look those up yourself, and if you have a good study Bible, it will give you more introduction concerning the book of James and its author than I will give this morning, and I encourage you to look at that. And, but James is the half-brother of Jesus. There was additional family, there were children that Joseph and Mary bore after the virginal conception of Jesus. And what's interesting is the first time that John in his gospel, just take John for example, In John chapter 7, the first time that John introduces us to Jesus' family, his family between Joseph and Mary, we find in John chapter 7 that his brothers are mocking him. They do not believe he is who he said or claims to be. The term is coined, and you've heard it, a prophet has no honor in their own country. Even his brothers, John 7, 5, do not believe in him and we're kind of mocking him there in chapter 7, essentially saying, encouraging them to go to Jerusalem because anyone, anybody that wants to be big needs to go there. And John adds that even his own brothers do not believe in him. And James was certainly a part of that. Charles Stanley makes this note. Some of you use his study Bible, but I thought this note said it very succinctly where he says about James, at the beginning, James refused to believe in either the ministry or the deity. That's the, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. James did not believe that. His own brother did not believe him. But James's disbelief remained steadfast throughout Jesus' earthly life. And it was only after the resurrection did James come to a different conclusion. I guess so. Hello? If my brother died and rose from the dead, they got my attention. James, like many of other people, were changed. And so James was a leader in the church in Jerusalem, and many attribute his role as a pastor, as a local pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And we see many facets of that role that he played there, and you can again look at that. But look with me in verse 1 of chapter 1. I'm going to make a few remarks and then we're going to stand and read the word of the Lord. But let me just make a few remarks. Notice how it begins. James, and I'm reading from the ESV. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. That's typical of the way the letters in the ancient times began. We put our name at the end of a document. They began usually because of the scroll. You open it up, kind of like you got a message, you want to see who it's from first, rather than reading the whole thing and, think, and find out who it's from. They put their name and identity at the beginning. Now keep in mind what I said about James and the way that he introduced himself. The fact that James did not pull rank in who he was. James did not say, James, the son of the Virgin Mary, brother of none other, than Jesus Christ, Lord and Creator. I grew up with him. I knew him long before he became famous. You know, he didn't write it that way. Now, some of you will not connect this, but my mind is goofy, and I think of Elf with Santa. You remember the movie Elf? I know him! Now, if you haven't seen the movie, you're clueless, and that's okay. James begins by saying, like his brother Jude, Jude was a... The book of Jude is a, another brother, half-brother of Jesus. James began by opening up by saying that he was a servant. Now, servant sounds very nice. When you think of servant, we think of like a butler. Mr. French. Now, that's a generational term. See... See, I know the age, I can just tell by the laughter. If I say Mr. French, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Ask your parents. Or grandparents, maybe. That's the... But servant in here is the word doulos. That means slave. Now, we understand the evil connotations of slavery. We don't have to. But in the uh, ancient world, slavery was less about racial as much as many times there were those who were slaves they were still bonded and had no rights I'm not trying to sugarcoat it it just was a common economic evil that was predominant in the ancient times it certainly was prominent in our own country and we continue to repent of that evil that uh, is part of our history but James identifies himself by calling himself James a slave of God a slave doesn't walk around, what does not walk around with a daytimer. They don't have their own agenda. You know what their agenda is? whatever the master's agenda is. James identifies himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. And let me just mention this also because we've been we've been studying this the last few weeks on Wednesday night in our study on the Apostles' Creed. And this past week we the last few weeks, and we'll continue this week talking, About the divinity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is God, a very God, the Son of God. Notice that James mentions God and Jesus Christ on equal terms. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He puts, by adding Lord, which is the Old Testament word for God, Yahweh, James puts, Jesus and God in equal terms. Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, James, I'm sorry, James, the half-brother of Jesus, affirms the deity of Christ. He did not just come and to realize that this brother of his was someone special. He came to the revelation. Remember what Jesus told Peter when Peter said, Thou art the Christ flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father... We only come to the fact of who Jesus is by a supernatural revelation of God into our hearts. And James came to that place himself by affirming that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But also in verse 1, there's also some other things that are helpful in there. He writes to the 12 tribes who are dispersed Abroad, the ESV says to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Dispersion means scattered, and he uses that term because James, as a pastor, is writing a pastoral letter of encouragement to Christian Jews that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. You remember in the Book of Acts that around chapter or at chapter six, when Stephen, a deacon, in the early church, was murdered, it began a great persecution within the early church. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Ghost fell, the Holy Spirit fell, the Bible says that one of the aspects of the church that was happening is they enjoyed favor with all the people. Well, that was short-lived because the authorities accused the apostles by spreading the entire city with their doctrine And so the church was exploding, the authorities got restless, and one of the first acts they made was by the stoning and killing of Stephen. And if you read the end of chapter 6 of the book of Acts, you'll see that the man who was present there holding the coats of those who stoned him was none other than Saul of Tarsus, who we know as the Apostle Paul that God delivered. But James is writing to the and he's using that very Jewish term. He says to the 12 tribes, he's writing to these individual believers that are scattered all over. Why are they scattered? Because they have been rejected not only by the Gentiles, the non Jews, but they've been rejected by the Jews because of their Christian faith. They are persecuted. Many, as you know, with Paul's background, when he was Saul, he persecuted the church. He would take families out, burn their houses. Uh, almost a modern-day ISIS mentality. That's about the best way you can describe Saul of Tarsus. These believers were poor because people tried to squeeze them economically or use them as slave laborers. They were oppressed by the rich. And James, a pastor, is writing to them to encourage them. The New Testament book of James is probably the very first book written in the New Testament, the first book in the New Testament, probably about 15 years after Jesus was crucified. So that gives you a little idea, before Paul was writing his books. And so there's a very Jewish flavor in the book of James. James was killed around the year 62, about 30 years after his half-brother Jesus was crucified. What does James want to communicate? What did he want to communicate then? And what does he want to communicate to us here today? I've called this the gospel on the ground. I was with a group of pastors a few weeks ago in a Converge meeting in Orlando. And towards the end, as we were praying for each other and talking, uh, somebody said, well, what, what, are, y'all preaching? what are you all preaching? What are you doing? And I said, that I'm going to be starting the book of James in a few weeks. And one of the pastors there jokingly said because I told him that we were talking about the gospel for several weeks in January. And he says, oh, you're going to go from the gospel to the law. And he laughed. He said, I know that's not true. But people think of that when they read the book of James, because James has a lot of commands. And we think that it's just law-driven. But I want to make sure that we understand that James is gospel-centered. He's gospel-focused. He himself is a recipient... Of the gospel of grace. You can't write about the gospel. You can't talk about the gospel unless you first have become a partaker of the gospel. Remember, James didn't believe in Jesus and he was living in his own house. And it was after the resurrection that Jesus in one of the scriptures made it a point to tell James and to show himself to James, and to tell James, again, extending grace even to little brother, who mocked him, rejected him, James himself was a recipient. Imagine the burden that Peter felt by denying Jesus, you know, those three times and rejecting him, but James, growing up in the household, and yet rejected and mocked and perhaps even was... You know, uh, just just ugly in the way that he spoke, and condescending, and he realized who this brother really was. That here I had been living with God, a very God, and I rejected him. Do you not think that man understands grace? You bet he does. He understands grace real well. So, what what do we want to? We're going to stand and read. Verses one through four in just a moment, but let me let me just say this. Hold on, hold on. Y'all woke up. Stand. You know, you ever do that to somebody in class that was dozing off? I used to do that to my friend. He'd be over there. I'd say, "Hey, he's asking you a question." And he would stand up and make a fool of himself. And so, just a minute. Y'all are excited to read, and that's good. But this is what I believe James wants to help us understand regarding the gospel. It's this. The gospel, and when I say the gospel, that's the rescue, redemptive work that God did for us. Okay? The gospel, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ is always working in the believer's life. And is always, listen to this carefully. I wrote these words very deliberately. It's all The gospel is always working. And the gospel is always moving and pressing us further and further to live lives of genuineness and authenticity. The word of God is always going to be in our face. But that's the wonderful thing is when we come and we feel like we've been slaughtered and we say god who can stand who can do these things that's the beauty of the gospel because no one can and we say but you jesus save me help me redeem me make me into what you created me to believe to be we are called to believe the gospel but james calls us to apply the gospel okay to apply the gospel in the midst of our chaos That surrounds us. The gospel, we don't make it relevant. It is relevant. It is true. This is the faith. Jude said, earnestly contend for the faith. The gospel, it's not theoretical. It's not academic. It's not just a theological lecture. But it is to be walked out. It is to be lived out. It is to be pressed out in the confusion and suffering of this earth that we walk on. This is the gospel on the ground. This is the real stuff that affects and changes our life. So with that, now stand and let's read James 1, 1 through 4. And We're going to pray and you can be seated. And I've made a choice not to put a, use the screen, especially for Scripture, because I'm convinced that it can make us lazy. And you and I don't know our Bibles well enough to neglect using them. We want this to be user-friendly church. Now, I know some of you are in the dark, literally, <laughs> pockets, and we'll fix that. But you need to be able to know where to turn, where to open, where things are. And you need to make use of this wonderful gift that God has given to us that many, maybe the majority of people around the world in some of these Islamic countries and still tyrannical governments would just do anything to have what we have. Amen? That's not to make us feel guilty. It's to make us have a sense of obligation and a sense of of the trust that we have. So with that, let's read. And I'm going to read from the ESV and you follow along. If you have a different version, then we'll all get to the same spot. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, Greetings! Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing let's pray gracious God use this word to be your voice to us today God speak to us through the authority of your word that you have given us and secured and protected through the ages, that we can stand here in 2015 and hear your voice. We can hear your voice without confusion, without clamor. We can hear the God who spoke universes into existence speak into my life. So Lord, may we give our full attention to your word today. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Amen. And amen. You may be seated. I know many of you know who Max Lucado is. And one of I have not read a bad Max Lucado book. I don't know if the man can write a bad book, but but in his book called The Eye of the Storm, he gives the famous or infamous story of Chippy the Parakeet. Really? Chippy the Parakeet is the stuff legends are made of. Chippy the Parakeet never saw it coming. One second, he was peacefully perched in his cage, minding his own business. The next minute, he was sucked in, washed up, And blown over. The problem began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it in the cage. The phone rang, and she turned to pick it up. She had barely said hello when "Ah!" Chippy got sucked in. The bird owner gasped, put down the phone, turned off the vacuum and opened the bag and there was Chippy, still alive but stunned. Since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she grabbed him and raced him to the bathroom, turned on the faucet and held little Chippy under the running water. Then realizing that Chippy was soaked and shivering, She did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the hairdryer and blasted the pet with hot air. Poor Chippy never knew what hit him. A few days after the trauma, the reporter who uh, who had written about the event contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. The owner said this, well, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. Anybody relate with Chippy? Do you feel like life has sucked you in, covered you with dirt and soot, and then you never knew what happening. You're sitting there, minding your own business, familiar territory with a song of your lips, and then out of nowhere, you get a pink slip, In your mailbox, your office mailbox. A rejection letter from the credit company arrives. The doctor calls. Divorce papers are delivered. The check bounces. A policeman knocks on your door. Life happens, doesn't it? First sermon I spoke here was talking about the valleys. You're either going in a valley, you're either in the valley, you're getting ready to go into the valley... ...or you're coming out of a valley. That's kind of the way life works, doesn't it? It'd be nice if we could just cruise for a while... ...but that isn't the way it usually works. Now remember what we're talking about in the book of James. James is wanting to draw us by the Spirit... ...to draw us in his audience... ...that in the midst of the chaos and the stress... ...and being sucked in and covered with dirt... And where we're just finding ourselves that one day we used to have a song, but now we just sit there and stare because of all that has come at us. He wants us to hear the voice of God. That's usually where I'm most listenable, is when I'm at that place like Chippy. God has my attention Most of the time, unfortunately, that's the way it works, is when stuff has happened. And I find myself sitting and staring and wondering, what has just happened in my life? James says, now that we have your attention, let's hear God. Do we want to hear God? Do we really care? I mean, we say that, but you might not feel that way after we start reading and looking at what God in His Word has us to say, because we would rather feel better and feel good. But sometimes the pressing tension of the Word of God has to work in our lives to pull away that veneer before we can get whole, before we can get healed. There's something that has to take place in our lives. Look at three things from our passage this morning that we'll look at. Number one, you feel the weight of God's word here. What does he say at the very beginning? Well, the first point I would draw your attention to, and what James is desiring from us is a radical attitude, because what James is telling us and saying to us is radical because it's the opposite of what we want or what we want to pay somebody to tell us. It's a radical thought. And so we should, first of all, adopt a radical attitude in trials. A radical attitude in trials we should adopt. When he says in verse one, or chapter 1, verse 2, he says, consider it, count it all joy. Now, I have been known to walk out of movies if, it didn't, if I didn't like it in the first 15, 20 minutes. I've even paid my children to get me out of the theater. They dragged me to some children's movies that after a while I said, you know what, I'll pay you $10 each if we can leave. That's how bad I hated this movie, okay? I think they took me to movies just to make extra money. If a book doesn't capture my attention there in the first chapter, I'm probably not going to drudge through it. Not going to continue. And so here I'm suffering. I'm, I'm, I'm hurting. Life has fallen apart all around me. The audience that James is writing to, remember, they're being attacked and persecuted by Jews. They're all Jewish. But they become believers in Jesus Christ. And so they're rejected by their Jews, their fellow Jews. They're rejected by the Roman Gentiles because they're part of this Christian cult. They're like the guy in the Civil War that wore a blue jacket with gray pants. He got shot at from both sides. You ever feel that way? And so James is not starting out by saying, Hey, don't worry. Be happy. Now you may think that's what he says, but let's dig a little deeper. The word consider means this in the Greek it denotes and means a deliberate and careful judgment, it means to evaluate. When he says, Consider or count. He's saying, look, don't put your mind in suspension. He's saying, I'm telling you, make a conscious effort, a conscious decision to look at what you're dealing with, what you're going through, look at it from a God perspective. That's what we're trying to do today. When we hear the word of God, and we are pressed by the weight of God's word to all our stuff, and all our shenanigans that go on during the week, and we come in here and we wonder why we're uncomfortable, sometimes if we're uncomfortable because we feel the weight of the gospel pressing us to say, you cannot remain the same. God is always working. He's always pressing. He's always pushing us out of our comfort zone. Trials. You put in whatever word you want. Suffering, hardship, difficulties. The natural human response is to do the very opposite of what the Word of God says here. Very opposite. The natural response is what are you talking about? Rejoice. What is this written by Pastor Wacko? Are you crazy? What do you mean? Rejoice. Have joy. James is saying, I want you to make a conscious decision, not based on your feelings. We are so manipulated and torn by feelings. He's saying, look, put your feelings aside. I'm not denying you don't feel, but I'm telling you to, by the Spirit, I'm telling you to make a decision and look at your situation and make a choice and count it, consider it. We need to think and see from the Word of God. You know the word I use, and you've heard me say it, calibrate. You may you know what? Calibrating machinery. If you don't calibrate it and do the calibration in a, in a systematic, routine way, then whatever that machinery is meant to do or the computer systems are meant to do, or eventually you might be able to skip a few days, maybe a week. Maybe if such you won't even be able to skip a few hours, but sooner or later... Your neglect of calibrating, resetting it, will sooner or later show itself in defective products. What do we do when we come here this morning on Sundays? We're calibrating our minds back to the Word of God. Everything, this is only 40 minutes or so. And yet we live all week long with the barrage of satanic messages through this world system and the barrage of defeatism and the barrage that you're not gonna live, you're not gonna make it, and the only way to make it is to take matters into your own hands. That's where joy is found. James is saying, no, count it all joy by holding it into his hands, seeing it from him. And we see change our mind, the Bible says, don't be conformed. Don't be conformed to this world. The J.B. Phillips paraphrase says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. I like that. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you, that by testing you may discern, figure out what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's Romans 12, 2. This radical attitude that James talks about as we look at trials, says that trials should be expected. We shouldn't be surprised. Remember what Jesus said? Don't be shocked when they persecute you. Don't be shocked when stuff happens. They came after me, they're going to come after you. You follow Jesus, the same enemy that was after me, Jesus said, he's going to come after you. The radical attitude accepts that trials are to be expected and they shouldn't be a surprise. Notice what James does not say. If you encounter various trials. He didn't say if. He says when. When. It's not an elective. Remember electives in school? It's a required course, and you have to repeat it every semester. You don't graduate until you go to heaven. It's part of the sovereign process that God has ordained that he works in our lives. Peter said, beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. We sometimes think that if I do all the right things, if I check all the right boxes, then everything should just be as Tiny Tim would say, tiptoe through the... See, these are generational references. Sorry. And I will not try to sing like Tiny Tim. But we get angry at God. You know, I, I became a Christian and Somebody told me that, man, I'm going st- my bank account's gonna jack up. Didn't Sammy used to say jack up? Didn't, gonna, right, so see. I think he's wrote that somewhere on here. I don't I'm gonna have a great marriage. Sex life's gonna be through the roof, or on the roof, whatever you want to do. <laughs> Sorry for those over seventy. Didn't mean to offend you. And all of a sudden, I became a Christian. And man, I've never had so many problems. I've never had so many difficulties. You change teams. You change teams. You're an enemy of this world. Remember, the Bible says that Satan is a god, little g, of this world. When you changed sides, you became public enemy, number one, in the demonic kingdom. And everything that was this worldly system that you were nourished by, all of a sudden now, you're opposed to, and they're opposed to you. Remember all your friends that you just, you know, some of my uh, children found this out when they go back to visit old friends and spend the weekend, and they've moved along spiritually or mature in, in their maturity, and they go back and they realize that, wait a minute, they're not so close friends like I thought I had. Those friends that you thought, man, I would jump out in front of a car for. Buddies. All of a sudden, you began to go to church. Talk about, well, i gotta uh, been reading in the Bible. Reading what? Reading in the what? What are you, a Jesus freak? And all of a sudden, those good friends, you don't get invited to the Monday night football beer bash at Buffalo Wild Wings anymore. They don't want you around. You know why? Because you make them uncomfortable. You bother them. Well, they may not understand all that, but the Holy Spirit and the spirit of darkness cannot dwell in the same because the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit of light is always going to overtake the dominion of darkness. So we shouldn't be surprised by trials. Also, a radical attitude, and this is important, does not require denying emotional pain. Is that what you're saying? I should just kind of, you know, if I, I slam the hammer on my hand, I should just go, praise God. Let me tell you. That's not the first thing that comes in my mind. And what comes in my mind might get me fired if I said it. Hello? I'm going to come out and knock some of those halos off your head. You know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. That's crazy. That We're not talking about that. You know what I thought of? I thought about, remember when Jesus showed up, was it four days uh, to Lazarus uh, when he was dead? And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth did not say, Martha, count it all joy. What did Jesus do? Easiest memory verse in the Bible. He wept. Emotional pain is real. When the Savior faced the cross, he did so with loud crying and tears, Hebrews 5, 7. Paul instructs us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep. With those who weep. James is not saying put on your happy face and deny that you're hurting. He's not saying that. We're not saying that. Paul would say at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4 6, the last letter that he wrote. Paul would say, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul was living in the light of the gospel, but he was not denying the real pain that he was enduring. In fact, if you read the end of chapter uh, of 2 Timothy, he talks about all those who abandoned him, left him. He's hurting. And yet he could still write about the joy of God. What is that? That joy is something that God does in your life. It's something you have that as God, as you grow, as you work, as he presses, as he he pushes, as he takes the word of God and the redemptive gospel and it's permeating our lives, all of a sudden we realize that even when the stuff happens to us, happens against us, happens around us. It doesn't mean we don't deny the pain and the hurt and the sorrow, but inside, it's not this panic, God, where are you? It's an assurance that God says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. You may be all alone. You may be the last man standing, but you stand with the assurance that the triune God who spoke the universe into existence. As John 1 says, Jesus came and dwelt among us. That literally means He came and pitched tent. He pitched tent in your house. He pitched tent in your heart. And He will never leave you nor forsake us. A radical attitude isn't putting on a happy face. A radical attitude is not natural. Remember Paul and Silas when they were arrested in Acts chapter 16? And it says in the midnight hour, what are they doing? They're singing and worshiping. And if you read that passage, it says that the jailers were all listening to Paul and Silas worshiping the Lord in captivity, in suffering. It's that confidence that God is in control. We can talk about the sovereignty of God all day long. It's only when you're pushed off the cliff do you really believe that God is in control or he's not. A radical attitude must be a deliberate choice. Will I trust in God? Will I trust in His promises? You can buy a, a beautiful jacket that says it's waterproof. You can wear it around and have you know enjoy it. but there's only one real way to test whether it's waterproof. Stand in the downpour and test whether that jacket's gonna keep you dry. And if it doesn't, it's not a good jacket. You better go get your money back. The testing, the testing, the counting, all of that is when you choose to trust God in the midst of your chaos. You know whether that faith is genuine. I've known people, and you know people. And they come and they have great fanfare and coming to Jesus and they go for a little while and they're just blazing and they're and all of a sudden testing comes. Didn't Jesus talk about that in the parable of the soils about the seed? And the minute trouble and tension and pressure begins to happen, what happens? They're gone. Oh man, I gave this Jesus a test drive. It didn't work. So I think I'm going to Go try something else. To trust God and experience His hope and joy in the midst of trials is a radical attitude that James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us to adopt. Secondly, verse 3. It's a radical attitude that we must adopt. Secondly, we should understand, not only having a radical attitude, but we should understand a reassuring truth in trials. Knowing, look at verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. There's two things that we need to remember. is we talk about the sovereignty of God, God is sovereign even over our chaos, our trials. He's using trials for His purpose. He's not sitting in heaven... Saying, oh no, I didn't want that to happen. But now that it's happened, let's see how we can make the best out of a bad situation. That's not what God is doing. God is sovereign over everything. Listen to these words from the book of Job. Let's well, just listen. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. I haven't read these words in a long time. But listen to these words as they talk about the sovereignty of God. Job 37, 6 through 13. He, God, directs the snow to fall on the earth and tells the rain to pour down. Then everyone stops working so they can watch His power. The wild animals take cover and stay inside their dens. The stormy wind comes from its chamber and the driving winds bring the cold. God's breath Sends the ice, freezing wide expanses of water. God's breath. He loads the clouds with moisture and they flash with his lightning. The clouds churn about at his direction. They do, listen to this, the clouds. They do whatever he commands. He makes these things happen either to punish people or to show His unfailing love. Paul would write, and we know. And we know. See, that's a mental understanding, a choice. And we know that those who love God, that He works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that God is in control even in our trials. Because we know that God has let it first pass through His hand. And has allowed whatever this is to come into our life. But the difference is He doesn't leave us on the limb waiting for it to break. He has a purpose. Isn't that what Romans 8.28 says? And we know and we know. We know that God works all things together, together for good to those, listen, to those who are called according to His purpose. If you don't believe in God, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's not for you. Because all things will not work together for your good. They will work for your destruction. But to the child of God, we hold that promise That in the midst of all the craziness, in the midst of when everything is coming down around me, I can say that, God, I don't know when, I don't know how, but I trust in your promises that you will work all things together for good. Help me, God, through your Spirit, navigate through this situation. Teach me. Later next week, we'll talk about if any of you lack wisdom, do what? Ask Dr. Phil. No. Ask God. That's a radical revelation, isn't it? Ask God. And so God is using the trials that press us, push us to test our faith. Why do you test something? You test something to reveal the integrity of the structure. Before some of the great bridges and things that, structures that were ever built, they tested the weight They put an inordinate amount of pressure upon the structure to reveal if there's anything or there's any flaws in that structure. Better to test the Golden Gate Bridge before 20,000 cars start rolling past it in a few hours. Why is something tested? Why are you tested when you're in school? To reveal what is lacking. And some of us passed those kinds of tests all too well of what was lacking. David Platt says this, We need to realize that trials are not joyful in and of themselves, but they are joyful when we realize they are under the authority of a sovereign God who is accomplishing His purposes through them. Billy Graham said, Mountaintops are for views and inspiration, but fruit... Is grown in the valleys. So when we encounter trials, we should adopt the radical attitude of counting it. A radical attitude. Counter what we want to do. Counter our feelings that we should count it all joy. And we should understand the reassuring truth that our sovereign God is using it to develop our faith. The last from our passage is in verse 4. We should submit, we should submit to the refining process in these trials. Submit to the refining process in these trials. Verse 4, let steadfastness or endurance, let steadfastness have its perfect result. Look, look at verse 4. There's one word there that's the hinge, it's the hinge to everything. It's the word let. Let. What does that mean? That means submission. That means I don't have to let it. I don't have to let it. But James, the weight of God's word to us today is let the trial, let yourself be steadfast and let it have its complete result. Submit to God in The chaos. Paul prayed. It doesn't mean being passive. Paul prayed. In fact, he prayed three times for God to remove what? That thorn in the flesh. He wasn't passive. Let go and let God No, He prayed. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Being submissive to God does not necessarily mean that we don't take steps to remedy the problem. This is where... People are confused and misunderstand the sovereignty of God. If the trial is a loss of job, it is not wrong in dependence on God to seek another job. Hello? If the trial is an illness, it is right, and not only right to not only pray, but to seek medical help that God has given the knowledge of all medicine. If it's a difficult circumstance, it's not wrong to try to change the circumstance. You see, we confuse the sovereignty of God with fatalism. Islam teaches fatalism. Whatever Allah wills, Allah wills. That is not the sovereignty of God. Fatalism says... It doesn't matter what I do, God will do what He wants to do in spite of it. The sovereignty, the biblical teaching of the sovereignty of God says that God will use everything, even the stuff that people do around me and against me, God will use everything to accomplish His design and loving purposes for my life. Things are not just random chaos. God has a divine purpose. Remember what Joseph told his brothers? When he revealed that he is Joseph and they sold him into slavery. And years later he says, what you meant for evil. God intended purpose for good. Tony Evans says, God is bigger than the bad. God is bigger than the bad. Let me give you a practical example. Talk about sovereignty versus fatalism. A few years back we between Sherry and one of our sons we accumulated some large medical bills of some unplanned things that insurance didn't cover and so they were quite high and they had a process where the both hospitals there were different situations that you could they had a, a, a they might reduce your bill but you had this elaborate paperwork you had to go through in order for them to consider doing that. And it would have been easy just to say, well, it is what it is. Just It's, it's not going to work. And I had to look at that bill. And so we went through copies and the, I mean all sorts of things in order to, to send it to them. And you know what? Both of them reduced those bills radically, thousands of dollars. Did God do that? Yep. Did I do that? Yep. What would have happened if I just said, you know what? I'm just going to lay on my couch and let God do it. Because I believe in the sovereignty of God. You're a fool. You're an absolute fool and you do not understand the word of God. You're lazy and you're using the sovereignty of God as an absolute cop-out. St. Augustine said, pray. we should pray like everything depends on God and working as if everything depends on us. Sometimes we do that when we talk about sharing the gospel. Well, I believe in the sovereignty of God and the elect, and you know, whoever's going to get saved is going to get saved. That isn't what Paul believed. Yes, Paul said in 2 Timothy, he said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Paul is where we get election, predestination, all those wonderful revelations from God and the Word of God. But notice the same apostle who affirmed all those things also said in Romans 10, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who... Preach the good news so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Did you catch that? He affirms that yes, God has a people, but the means. God has not only ordained the end, but He's ordained the means that we are to go and tell everyone about this wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. God has ordained the end, salvation of those chosen, and He's also ordained the means by which they are to be saved. Sometimes we use the sovereignty of God as a cop-out when we give up on relationships, churches, institutions, because, well, it's in God's hand. Rather than prayerfully considering and taking the conf- and facing the conflict the way that Jesus prescribed and gave us the tools to do it. Sometimes we become fatalists when we blame our sinful disobedience on God's sovereignty. Well, you know, I'm just wired that way. You no know, that's my genetics. I'm predisposed to do this rather than working out our salvation with fear and trembling without doing what Romans chapter 6 says to put to death the deeds of sin, the work of sin, mortify the deeds of the flesh, mortify, an old King James word, mortician, put to death the sin in your life when we refuse to set goals to work toward rather than setting clear goals and holding them loosely and praying and doing like the old Puritans did when they had the phrase Deo Valente. Sometimes they would write and say, well, I plan to travel to America, and sometimes right next to it they'd write D-V. That's Latin, Deo Valente, which means if God wills, that I make my plans, but it's all under the control and discretion of, Yes, I'm making my plans. Yes, I'm moving forward. But I'm moving forward knowing that God is guiding me, working in me, helping me navigate. James says in verse 4, Let, let, let steadfastness have its full effect. Listen to the amplified. Some of you know what the amplified, it kind of brings out the Greek a little bit of that same verse. Listen to how the Amplified translates verse 4. But let endurance and steadfastness and patience have full play and do a thorough work so that you may be people perfectly and fully developed with no defects lacking in nothing. In 1967, Johnny Erickson Tada jumped into the Chesapeake Bay on a family vacation. And she misjudged the depth of the water when she jumped in there and forever changed her life. Do you know Johnny Erickson Tada? Is that name? She would, from that point... Forward, be a quadriplegic living her entire life in a wheelchair she's written extensively of books and things of her experience Billy Graham in the 70's when her testimony book came out that made a movie called Johnny some of you have seen it she's been an inspiration to many she is the picture of James 1 1 through 4 listen to what She said, she models joy in the midst of suffering. She shows that God often has a good purpose in our suffering that sometimes we don't even quite grasp. On one occasion, Johnny discussed having her wheelchair in heaven. Listen to what she said. Listen to the words that she said. This isn't just you get this by reading. You don't get this by just listening to some tapes. You get this when you're walking through the very fires of hell and God meets you and pitches tent because that's all you've got. Listen to these words. She says, I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven with me. I know that's not biblically correct, but if I were able, I would have my wheelchair up in heaven right next to me when God gives me a brand new glorified body. And I will turn then to Jesus and say, Lord, do you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said that in this world we will have trouble. Because that wheelchair has been a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker... I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So Jesus, I can say thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And then she adds this. And now Jesus... And she said, I always say this jokingly, you can send that wheelchair to hell. (laughs) Where does that kind of joy come from? It only comes from God. R.T. Kendall, last thought. R.T. Kendall says this in his commentary on James. He says, counting it all joy. Hear this, hear this. Counting it all joy is to dignify God's providence because it shows that you see God's hand in every area of your life.